Beloved, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, as we uh, continue uh, with this uh, sermon series during Advent season, which I've entitled Confessing Christ at Christmas, the Incarnation and the Reformed uh, Confession. Uh, this morning, we will look at uh, the topic of the humiliation uh, of Christ uh, through the lenses of Luke 2, 1 through 7. Please stand uh, with me for the reading of God's holy, inerrant, inspired, authoritative, and all-sufficient word. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first regist registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Amen. Would you pray with me? Our fathers, we come to this familiar text. We ask that we would see it with fresh eyes, that you would apply it to our hearts with greater impact and intensity, that we would respond with repentance and faith in Christ and wonder and glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, as you'll know, it's quite common and expected for royals and nobles to be born into a world of luxury and comfort. They are born in grand palaces, placed in beautiful bassinets, swaddled with soft blankets, and cared for by nurses and maids. For example, think of the 17th century British monarch, King Charles I, who was born in Dunfermline, palace in Fife, Scotland in the year 1600, or the French monarch, King Louis XVI, born in the opulent palace of Versailles in the summer of 1754. We can also mention Winston Churchill, who as a member of the aristocracy was born at the impressive Blenheim Palace in Oxfordshire in 1874. In each of these cases, and we could name dozens more, these offspring of nobility from the very first moment of their lives, enjoyed the finest that the world had to offer. Because of their family pedigree and position, they were born into wealth, comfort, and earthly glory. But dear ones, when it comes to the greatest royal ever to be born in this world, when it comes to the most noble and prominent uh, nativity, when it comes to the most significant and consequential birth in the history of mankind, we behold something very different. Indeed, when the eternal Son of God left the unspeakable environs of heavenly glory, being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her on that first Christmas, it was not to reside in a magnificent palace or a stately castle nor was it to be placed in a fine crib with 
silky blankets with nurses and maids standing by to assist his mother. Nor was it anything like what many of the young mothers in this room experienced with the excellent care and lovely surroundings of the hospital systems around Charleston. No, what was clearly to the amazement of the heavenly angels, the blessed Son of God, the eternal Word made flesh, the one through whom all things were created, was born in a stable and placed in a feeding trough and swaddled with ordinary cloths. The greatest and most exalted king was born in a barn and placed in a manger. The Christmas hymn writer expresses it beautifully, a hymn we will sing after this message. He writes this, quote, Thou who wast rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake becamest poor. Thrones for a manger didst surrender, sapphire paved courts for stable floor. Thou who wast rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake becamest poor. In the second verse, he writes, Thou who art God beyond all praising, all for love's sake becamest man, stooping so low, but sinners raising, heavenward by thine eternal plan. Thou who art God beyond all praising, all for love's sake becamest man. Dear ones, what we must remember this Advent season as we reflect upon the incarnation and birth of Jesus Christ is that he did all of this for you. He did all of this for you. He did this to free us from sin's dominion and to deliver us from hell's clutches. These are the glad tidings of Christmas. God the Son came to earth on a rescue mission to save us from what we deserve by grace through faith in Him. Think of Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, quote, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became, what? Poor. For your sake He became poor, so that you, by His poverty, might become rich. Or Mark 10.45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Well, in my Advent series over the past two Lord's Days, we have considered two doctrines which are essential to historic Orthodox Christianity. Two doctrines that were set forth by the prophets and the apostles and have been confessed by Christians since the early centuries of the church through historic creeds and confessions. The first doctrine we considered was from John 1, that the eternal, the eternal preexistence of Jesus Christ, the eternal word who came into this world was God of God and light of light and very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. We just confess this as a congregation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word 
was God, and, and the Word was made flesh, and He dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. And then last week, last week we reflected upon the virgin birth, both its nature and its necessity. We learned that without the virgin birth, we are doomed. This is not a, a doctrine to be negotiated in the modern church. It is to be held firmly to. Why? Because we were conceived and born, and born in sin. We were conceived in sin and we were born in sin, inheriting the spiritual disease of sin from Adam. But Christ was conceived supernaturally by the Holy Spirit, not born of ordinary generation, and thus born in innocence, born without sin. Born without sin, therefore, He was equipped to fulfill the requirements of the law on our behalf and to be the perfect, sinless sacrifice for us on the cross. These fundamental doctrines of the faith, of course, are set forth, all of them, in the historic creeds and confessions, such as the Apostles and Nicene Creeds, the Westminster Confession and the Three Forms of Unity, all which are on the back of the, the hymnal. But another doctrine that the Reformed have confessed for centuries in relation to the Holy Nativity or birth is the humiliation of Christ. That is, the estate of humiliation to which Christ entered when He descended from heaven to take on human flesh. It's what our passage for this morning punctuates as Luke describes the birth of the greatest king in such humble surroundings. Those familiar with the Westminster Larger Catechism will, will know that questions 46 through 54 helpfully explain the saving work of Christ by dividing it into two phases, by dividing Christ's life and ministry into two phases, the first one being His phase or estate of humiliation, the second His phase or estate of exaltation. Uh, see, we are to care about what it, it means that Christ came for us, and then we have to ask, well, why did He come, and what did He do when He came? Well, the first thing He did when He came was to come into an estate of humiliation, and question 46 asks this, what was the estate of Christ's humiliation? And the answer, again in question 46 of the larger catechism, says this, quote, the estate of Christ's humiliation was that low condition wherein He, for our sakes, emptying Himself of His glory, not His divinity, but emptying Himself of His glory, took upon Him the form of a servant in His conception and birth, life, death, and after His death, until His resurrection. What was the phase of Christ's humiliation? It began at His conception. And what a condescension that was. What a, an act of humiliation that was, coming from the glories and the worship of heaven down into the womb of the Virgin Mary, a sinful woman who needed Christ as Savior as much as we do and was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit. What an act of condescension and humiliation. That's where it all began. 
and it ran all the way through from his birth, through his life, through his death on the cross, and in his burial. And our confession clearly sets this forth. This was the estate of Christ's humiliation. And then, of course, it's with his resurrection from the dead that Christ enters his estate of exaltation, an estate that he remains in at this very moment and will for all of eternity. But this morning we are considering his estate of humiliation, and it starts with his conception and birth. And question 47 says this, how did Christ humble himself in his conception and birth? Answer, Christ humbled himself in his conception and birth in that being born from all eternity, the Son of God, in the bosom of the Father, he was pleased in the fullness of time, that's language from Galatians 4, to become the Son of Man, made of a woman of low estate, and to be born of her with diverse circumstances of more than ordinary abasement. What we are learning this morning from Luke chapter 2, dear ones, is this um, extraordinary abasement in which Christ was born. The, the circumstances of more than ordinary abasement. That's what we're learning about this morning in Luke chapter 2. And it's the emptying himself of his glory, not of his divinity, but of his glory, and taking the form of a servant that we observe in Philippians chapter 2. A key text on the incarnation. If you have your Bibles, turn with me there to Philippians chapter 2 and verses 5 through 8. And on days like today, isn't uh, God's promise to Noah a good one? We know we will survive this storm. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Form him as it concerns divinity and form as it concerns humanity. Christ had both of them as he assumed human flesh. But what does all this mean? You know, it's interesting as you read the first part of Philippians 2 where we have this convicting language of, of, of us being exhorted not to consider our own interests before others' interests, right? Uh, to put others' interests before our own. And there must have been a problem in the Philippian church with members thinking too highly of themselves and putting themselves before others all the time. Maybe people were fighting over who would go first in the, the fellowship meal. Um, maybe people in, in different ways were, were, were being uh, selfish and prideful and putting themselves first. And Paul uh, heard this uh, when he was in the prison in Rome. And so he makes this a part of his letter. But he, he, he brings in, as he exhorts them on having the mind of Christ and having a mind of humility and putting others first, he brings in some of the most exalted Christology in all of the Bible. 
So Paul points to Christ as the ultimate example of one who puts others' interests before his own by leaving the glories of heaven to assume human nature. He emptied himself and took the form of a servant. But what does this mean? What does it mean for Christ to empty himself, taking the form of a servant in the likeness of men? Well, this has been a subject that has caused much controversy in the church over the centuries. Ancient and modern heretics have taught that in some form or fashion, the Son of God emptied himself of his divinity, or at least some aspects of his divinity when he became man. That during his earthly life and as a dimension of his humiliation, His divine nature was in some ways downgraded so that it would not be said of him that he was fully God and fully man in his incarnation. But that's not the case at all, as Scripture and our historic creeds and confessions emphasize. While we don't have time to fully unpack the controversies that have surrounded these Verses in Philippians 2, we must understand that when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, he emptied himself not of his divinity or any aspects of his divinity, but only the privileges and rights of his divinity. Amen? But only the privileges and rights of his divinity. In other words, Jesus came from heaven to earth not to reign as an exalted king, but to give his life as a humble servant. He came as a lion. Uh, uh, he came as a lamb. He will return as a lion. He came as a servant. He will return as a king. His exaltation would come later after his humiliation, and his humiliation would begin at his conception and birth in Bethlehem. We learn of Christ in Colossians 1.13 and Hebrews 1.3 that He created the universe. That He created the universe. The Son of God created the universe and He holds all things together. He is, as we learned in week one of this series, that He is the eternal Logos. And He didn't stop being the eternal Logos in any sense in His incarnation and birth. No, while maintaining his full divinity, he assumed full humanity and gave up his rights and privileges, choosing to be a man of no reputation. To underscore his willingness to impoverish himself to gain for us an eternal inheritance, to show us the greatness of His love for us, the eternal Son of God humbled Himself to a state of no ordinary abasement. In his book, The Person of Christ, Donald MacLeod explains that Christ, quote, possessed all the majesty of deity, performed all its functions and enjoyed all its prerogatives. He was adored by His Father and worshipped by the angels. He was invulnerable to pain, frustration, and embarrassment. 
He existed in unclouded serenity. This is prior to him coming down. His supremacy was total. His satisfaction complete. His blessedness perfect. Such a condition was not something he secured by effort. It was the way things were and always had been. And there was no reason why they should change. But change they did. Because Christ did not insist on his rights, but made himself nothing. John Calvin put it this way, Christ indeed could not divest himself of Godhead, but he kept it concealed for a time that it might not be seen under the weakness of the flesh. Hence, he laid aside his glory in the view of men, not by lessening it, but by concealing it, end quote. Dear ones, it was humanity that broke fellowship with God in the garden, and it would of necessity be a human that would bring us back into fellowship with God. And dear ones, only the eternal Son of God was worthy and able to accomplish such a task. And so the eternal Son of God became flesh, and He dwelt among us, giving up His rights, giving up His privileges, setting aside His glory, setting aside the privileges of His eternal Sonship for a time to secure for sinners the rights and privileges of sonship forever. He laid aside his privileges of sonship to give us the privileges of sonship forever. And so Christ entered the estate of this humiliation in Mary's womb and in his birth in Bethlehem. And Luke recounts this in our text for this morning a text where we observe a providential decree, a hard journey, and a humble birth. First of all, a providential decree. Would you look with me at verse 1 of chapter 2? In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. Isn't it amazing to see how the invisible hand of God works in our lives? You think about your own life, where you have come from, the way the Lord has brought you to where you are, and you know, one thing when it comes to God's providence we can be thankful for are either, we can put it this way, unanswered prayers or prayers where God says no. Aren't you glad that God has said no a lot to you? Because in his providence, he brings us to where he wants us to be. And where he wants us to be is always the right place. It's extraordinary how the invisible hand of God's providence takes us to places we never thought we'd go and gives us experiences we never thought we'd have. He ordains the blessings and the pain to keep us close to his side to humble us, to give us a desire for heaven, to turn our hearts away from the allurements of the world, and to constantly remind us that in Him we have salvation and true and lasting joy and true and lasting hope and rest for our weary and anxious souls. Of course, we recognize God's amazing providence in these first three verses in chapter 2. It was... Not uncommon for Roman emperors to call for a census to 
register its citizens for the purpose of collecting taxes and making account in terms of military power. Emperor Octavian, otherwise known as Caesar Augustus, was known for his administrative acumen. And so it's not surprising to learn of this call to register with the Roman authorities. But ultimately, behind it all, was the invisible hand of our heavenly Father bringing Joseph and his pregnant wife, Mary, the one to whom he was betrothed, to Bethlehem for what they thought was primarily a registration, but would ultimately be for a holy birth. One commentator puts it this way, quote, Little actions have great significance, for the ruler was to come out of Bethlehem, and only a governmental decree puts the parents in the right place, end quote. So all of this is to fulfill Old Testament prophecy. Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. His coming forth is from ancient of days because he's the eternal son of God. And he's coming forth to be born of a virgin. And did you notice that he is born not only in a stable and placed in a manger, but he's born in a backwater town. He's not born in Charleston. He's born in Hollywood, South Carolina. He's not born in New York City. He's born in some small town in New Jersey. He's born in this humble place, in these humble circumstances, to remind us again and again that the Lord's wisdom and thoughts are higher than our wisdom and thoughts, that he does things differently, and the gospel is counterintuitive, and it's countercultural. We see strength and weakness. We see his might in a tiny baby. And so with this registration, Joseph and Mary make this 90-mile journey, this hard journey. And so Quirinius, who was the governor of Syria, a Roman province, he assisted heavily with this census and registration. And notice how Luke, again, is concerned with the details of history. So in verse 3, we learn that all went to be registered, each to his own town, to the place of his ancestral roots. And Joseph... Mary's betrothed was of the house and lineage of David. And this served to show Jesus' messianic status, didn't it? Making him a descendant of David. Therefore, Joseph and Mary went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee where they were living and made the 90-mile trek to the city of David called Bethlehem so they could register. This wouldn't have been an easy journey for anybody, much less for Mary. But they made the trip as she was already in the last stages of her pregnancy. And this is a fact not to be missed, that they made this journey to be obedient to Caesar's decree. Did it ever occur to you how extraordinary it is that this family went to register when it was so far away and she was so far along in her pregnancy? We know that in Paul's letters, as well as Luke's, 
uh, rendering of the early church in the book of Acts and his gospel, that there was a constant emphasis, sometimes explicit, sometimes implicit, that the Christian church was not established to undermine the Roman authorities and governments. We see that set forth here in our text. This story, this, this reference is to reinforce to the Roman authorities that Christianity is not a disruptive movement in Roman civil society. The early Christians were commanded to live peaceably and to pray for their governing rulers. It was also to show that Christ's mission was not to take over the kingdoms of this world. That would, of course, come later. Christ's kingdom is not of this world. Luther writes that here, quote, Jesus shows that his kingdom was not to be of an earthly character, nor to exercise worldly power and lordship, but that he, together with his parents, is subject to the powers that be, end quote. There's a lot of talk these days about Christian nationalism, people being very upset and, and, and unhinged regarding the state of our governing authorities. And yes, there is much to be concerned about. There are many things to pray about. And we ought to be good citizens. And we ought to vote. And we ought uh, to uh, do the right thing and, and obey the law and pray for our governing authorities and, and hope for better days uh, ahead. But the mission of the church is not to undermine the governing authorities. It's not to set up a kingdom on the earth. The mission of the church is to proclaim the gospel of Christ's kingdom. And one day, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God. Amen? One day, Christ will return, and that will be the case. But for now, we do not labor to undermine the authorities of this world and the kingdoms of this world, nor to set up Christ's kingdom, as it were. We preach the gospel. We plant churches, embassies of grace. And we look for the return of Christ. And this leads us to the final point of the humble birth. And you'll see in verse 6 and 7, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Of course, first of all, we see here where Jesus is born. When Joseph and pregnant Mary arrived in Bethlehem, there was no space for them in the inn. As Luther says in one of his Christmas sermons, the Virgin Mary should have entered Bethlehem in a golden chariot. They should have been placed in the most comfortable and beautiful setting known to man. And yet they enter the town and there's no place for them in the inn. Now, we need to get out of our minds that this is some sort of King Street, you know, hotel that they walked in and the bellboy said, I'm sorry, there's no space. This would have been uh, a kind of hostel uh, or a kind of large home where people would have stayed and there would have been a barn or a cave close by for those travelers who are already there to place their animals. And so you can imagine that Mary, it was very likely, was having birth pains. And they go to this, this place, and there's no room. It's all filled up. And so Christ's birth would be 
of no ordinary abasement. It would have been bad enough to be in this country inn. But they go on from that to the stable. We have no room for you here. I'm so sorry. But we do offer you the barn. And so they took shelter with the animals in the stable. One can only imagine how this much must have pained Joseph, not able to provide a decent shelter for his betrothed and then to have their firstborn baby born in this environment. Here, the Son of God is born in a smelly, dirty stable, placed in a feeding trough, presumably for cows or horses or sheep. One writer, Philip Hughes, says this, quote, Joseph probably wept as much as Mary did during the birth. Seeing her pain, the stinking barnyard, their poverty, people's indifference, the humiliation, the sense of utter helplessness, feeling shame at not being able to provide for young Mary on the night of her travail, all that would make a man either curse or cry, end quote. The fact is, dear friends, what we are made to see here is that every one of us and our children were born in an environment a hundred times better than this, and yet the one being born was the blessed Son of God, the Prince of Heaven, and it was all for this reason, to enter the estate of humiliation for you and for me. And this leads to the second thing we need to consider. Why Jesus was born in this setting. I've already alluded to it. Jesus' being born in a stable underscores the nature of Christ's ministry. The reason why he came. That through his poverty, we would become rich. From the very beginning, we are reminded that Jesus set aside his heavenly privileges, his heavenly rights, his glory to humble himself, to dwell in our sinful, humble surroundings, and he was not given a place in an inn, and during his ministry he had no place to lay his head. All of that so that, Calvin, as Calvin says, heaven would be open to us. All of these things were shut to him so that heaven would be opened to us. The discomforts of the manger ultimately point us to the great discomforts of the cross. If we don't understand this, we've missed the message of Christmas. We've missed the whole point of the gospel. I've mentioned before that we enjoy collecting Christmas ornaments. We try to buy one when we are in new places we've never been before. Sometimes when we are in places we've been before, we'll pick up in these ornaments in order to remember every year as we put them on the tree, the special trips we've been on, the wonderful memories we have. One ornament is extra powerful. It was given to us as a gift probably 20 years ago by a friend. And it is a long metal stake with a red ribbon on the end. 
and it's meant to be placed on the tree against the trunk to be an ever-present reminder that the one who was born in Bethlehem on Christmas Day was born to die. That those beautiful silky hands would have nails, spear in his side, driven into his hands, into his side, into his brow with a crown of thorns, into his feet, all for us and for our salvation, bearing the weight and load of our sin and shame, and crying out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so as we prepare to come to the Lord's table, we are so powerfully reminded of the humanity of Christ. That he assumed, he took on human nature, human flesh for us. And did so that he would go to the cross 33 years later and die for our sins. I want to ask you a question this morning. Do you know him by grace through faith? Have you received him by grace through faith? Have you repented of your sin by grace faith? Have you turned from idols to serve the living and the true God by grace through faith in Christ Jesus? He came to save sinners. And so he calls us to turn from our sin, to turn from sinful patterns of living, speaking and thinking, to turn from the idols that we have given our hearts to, to serve him as the one true and living God and his son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. That's the message of Christmas. It's the message of salvation. It's the message that we sing through the rich hymnody during this season. And so let us look to him, the one who was rich beyond all splendor, but who came us down because of his love for us to make us rich with his salvation forgiveness, and mercy, and everlasting life. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you for the humiliation of Christ for us, which began at the conception and birth of Christ. And we ask, O oh Lord, that you would be pleased to work in us by your Spirit, this gospel truth, your word which brings life, your word which pierces to the innermost parts of our soul, and that you give us life in him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.